Hi, and welcome to this week's edition of the Ocean View Podcast. No matter where you're at in our country or around the world, we thank you so much for taking the time to listen. Now sit back and enjoy this week's message. My name is Terry. I'm one of the pastors here, and whether you're here on the floor or watching at home or up in the balcony, it's really great to have you here. And uh, I know just a little bit ago, if you if you weren't paying attention online or maybe you got cut out, but we had a little bit of a power surge here, and then everything went dark. And I, I got to be honest with you, when I'm sitting on the front row, um, I, and, and maybe I'm weird. Uh, well, my wife would tell you, yes, I am weird. But um, in those moments, I really don't get panicked. I really don't get freaked out. Um, in fact, I've learned uh, in, in my spiritual life, and uh, those of you that as you grow in, as being a, a believer in Christ, you understand that um, we, we live in a world, we live in a spiritual world. There are things going on that we can't even realize. And the, and the wiser you get in Christianity, you understand that, um, that there are things that out of our control. And so in these moments uh, when all of a sudden you have a stage full of people, I'm sure our musicians were not as excited as I was. I was in the front row. I was sitting there saying, okay, God, this is going to be interesting, you know, or we're going to, we're going to do church a little differently today. We might not have lights on. That's okay. Um, and it actually ties into our message today, believe it or not. And we've been going through a series uh, of really talking about what is life in the church really supposed to look like. And maybe during this coronavirus outbreak, maybe we can, as the church, be reminded of what the first church looked like, and maybe we could get back. Maybe we can use this as an opportunity um, to be able to key in on the main principles of who the church is and what the church is responsible for. And today, uh, we're going to go to the most important aspect of church. In fact, there's a guy by the name of Paul. We've been talking about him from time to time. And Paul writes a letter to a church in Corinth. And he is going to address this. He's going to talk about the most important aspect of what it means to be the church. And he's going to use a term that many of us, we've heard before, but maybe you don't understand. He's going to use the term gospel. But the word gospel actually means good news. Um, And as we launch this out, I I, want to share with you that the gospel is incredible. The gospel is powerful. But the gospel is also dangerous. Now, before you guys look at me and say, wait, what kind of church am I in? I'm going to explain. In fact, if you're taking notes, I want you to write this down. The gospel is dangerous to every life it encounters. It is. And we're going to unpack that today so that we all can be on the same page, but we can understand. Do you know what the word dangerous means, though, before you start calling me a heretic? The word dangerous means it's likely to cause problems or have adverse consequences. And for those of you who have chosen to follow Jesus Christ, you know this, that before you followed Jesus, you were living life a certain way. And if you truly accepted him as Lord and Savior, that life that you once knew ended and changed drastically, which is why I think the gospel is dangerous. It's dangerous to the life you lived before you followed Jesus Christ. And Paul is writing this church because this church is saying, hey, Paul, what's most important? What do we have to do in the church? And that's what he's going to address right now in chapter 15, starting in verse 1. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn there. But this is 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning in verse 1. Paul says, now let me remind you, dear brothers and sisters, of the good news, the gospel. I preached to you before. You welcomed it then, and you still stand firm in it. It is the good news that saves you if you continue to believe the message I told you. 
Unless, of course, you believe something that was never true in the first place. Today, we're going to talk about the gospel very, very emphatically. It is good news. And I have said this before here at Ocean View, and I continue to say it. Nothing is more important than someone's relationship with God. At the end of the day, we can kick, scratch, fight. We can be different denominations. We can argue. We can look at different methods. We can different, look at different ways to be able to share communion. We can look at different ways to be able to share baptism. But at the end of the day, nothing is more important than someone's relationship with God, which is why as a pastor, my heart breaks when I see denominations fight, when I see church members get fixated on the tiny things that absolutely at the end of the day do not matter. What's most important is someone's relationship with Jesus. The church was built and will always be built around the gospel. Now, I'm a teacher at heart, so what I figured is, is I would put myself in your shoes, and maybe you're watching online, and you say, Terry, okay, the gospel, I've heard it before, um, but what if I have questions about the gospel? What if I'm, you know, a Christian, but what if I have my doubts and my fears? And so what I figured we would do is we would tackle five questions today that I think some might have with regards to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And here's the first one. Terry, what is the pure gospel? If I were to be able to look at the scripture and I were to be able to really define what is the gospel, because let's be honest in church, there's a lot of church words that get thrown around that many of you go amen to, you shake your head up and down, but you have no clue on what it actually means. Right now there's some of you going, yes, finally someone who gets me. Yes, I understand. How many of you know what a lay leader is? There's probably half the room that does. Half of you go, I have no idea what a lay leader is. I wish someone would explain that to me. Well, I don't have time to explain today, but you get the point. So with that being said, we're going to answer the first question, what is the gospel? And I want you to write this scripture down, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning in verse 3, because Paul defines it. Take a look at what the gospel is. I passed on to you what was most important, the gospel, and what had also been passed on to me. And here's the gospel. Christ died for our sins just as the scriptures said. He was buried and he was raised from the dead on the third day, just as the scriptures said. So Paul says, you want to know what the gospel is? Christ died for me, just as it was foretold. So don't miss this. Paul says that in the scriptures, and by the way, if you're new to Christianity, uh, the, the, the Christian life is built on the word of God because the word of God is God. Does that make sense? That we believe that God's word is God-breathed, and so we trust that. So watch this. Hundreds and hundreds of years, thousands of years earlier, there were men that penned the words of God down. And there were things that were said hundreds of years earlier that would come true hundreds of years later, which is why we have a full confidence in God's word, because all of the prophecies that have come to this point in time have come true. The statistical chance of that happening is burying the state of Texas five feet deep in quarters, painting one of them red, blindfolding one of you, and sending you out through Texas to find that one red quarter with one try. That's the statistical chance of all the prophecies of the Old Testament coming true up to this point in time. You still wonder whether Christianity is real. That's okay. I know we have our skeptics. And so the gospel very simply is foretold by scripture, Jesus Christ came, died on a cross, beat death for your sins so you could have life. That's the good news. That's the gospel. But some of you, you're skeptics. I get it. I'm okay. I was a skeptic. And you might have the second question, which is this. All right, but Terry, was Jesus Christ real? Believe it or not, that is the easiest question for me to answer today. In fact, I don't even have to show you past the scripture to make you believe it. 
Because actually in our world today, you won't find many individuals that will argue against the fact that Jesus Christ physically was real on this earth. Do you know that our Jewish brothers and sisters, they do not believe Jesus Christ was the son of God, but they absolutely do not doubt one bit that Jesus Christ was a real live person on this earth and a fantastic teacher. You see, even atheists know that Jesus Christ physically was here on this earth. You can't deny it. If you've ever been to the Middle East, you see so much historical, physical evidence that Jesus Christ existed. So that's an easy one. Jesus absolutely. Absolutely, there's not a lot of argument that Jesus Christ was a real person here on the earth. Here's where the rubber meets the road. Third question, Terry, was he the son of God? Well, if you ever wondered that, and some of you are Christians, and let's be honest, some of you, you're Christians, you believe, your parents taught you, but at time to time, you've said, well, what if it's not real? What if, you know, what if he really wasn't the son of God? I mean, you know, I, I live my life that way, and I hope... By the way, if you ever wondered what would happen to you if you die, if someone said, hey, are you a Christian? Yes. When you die, do you know that you're going to go to heaven? I hope so. When you say that, what you're really saying is, is I've lived my life believing he's the son of God, but how do we really know? That's really what you're saying. Well, let me show you some scriptural evidence. And again, if you doubt it, you've got more faith than me. Because there's a guy by the name of Isaiah, and Isaiah was a prophet hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years earlier before Christ was born. And Isaiah is going to pen down and predict there will be a person that's going to come and he's going to do some things for us. He wrote these hundreds of years earlier. And then Jesus Christ comes onto the scene. I want to show you what Isaiah wrote. This is Isaiah chapter 53, verse 5. He says, but he, meaning Jesus, was pierced for our rebellion crushed for our sins. He was beaten so we could be whole. He was whipped so we could be healed. Isaiah wrote this, that someone's going to come and is going to take beatings so that we could be whole. Now, yesterday, or actually it was Friday, I went to the beach. It's hot in Myrtle Beach. I'm just saying, if you're not in Myrtle Beach, it's hot. And so I went on Friday with my family to the beach, and the reason why is I was outside earlier in the day, and I was doing some yard work, and I took my shirt off because I was sweating to death, and my wife came out, and she says, it's hot out here. Why don't you take your shirt off? And I looked at her, and I said, I did. And she said, oh, because you could still see the white of the tan of the T-shirt. Some of you are getting here. It takes a little while for you to get the joke, but you got it. And so finally, I said, okay, we need to go. I need to get a suntan. Let's go to the beach. So we took our family. We went to the beach, and we kind of got there, and I layered up on suntan lotion because I do not like to get sunburned. And so as we're sitting there, I spent about 20 minutes out in full sun, and then I got worried, and so then I, I retreated under my umbrella. My wife looked at me and said, what are you doing? And I said, well, I said, I don't want to get burned. She goes, you've only been out for 20 minutes. Come out in the sun. So I went ahead and threw caution to the wind. I went out into the sun. We saw some friends. We ended up talking for about two hours, me standing in the sun. So needless to say, right now, I'm really scratchy and burning right now. I'm in a lot of pain. I'm just saying, you can pray for me. But when I got home, why do we do this when you get sunburned? You take your shirt off, and then you look at the place that was white, and then you take your finger, because it's all red now, and what do you do? You push the skin, and you go, ow, ow, ow. Why do we do that? I think it's because we want to see how white we used to be and how red we are now, because when you push your skin, you all of a sudden see what it was like before, and then you take your hand off, and then it's, it's magic. It's amazing. It just, you know, comes to redness, and I was doing that like crazy, and it reminded me of this past scripture. 
Because think about it. I've never thought of the fact that when Jesus Christ, before he was crucified, he was beat within an inch of his life. And I knew that he was beaten for me, but I never saw what Isaiah said, where when every whip that Jesus took, it gave me life. Every time that he was beaten, I, which was dead in my sin and my humanness, was coming back to life. And it reminded me of, of pressing because the truth is, is that if I, if I were to press here, I would see my old life in death. And then if I release, I see the new life that I have. And that's what Jesus did for all of us. He gave us that new life. The psalmist, again, hundreds of years earlier, a psalmist was writing and actually communicating with David, King David. This was, this was written around the time of King David, which those of you who don't know the Bible too well, this was Old Testament. This was way before Jesus came. And the psalmist wrote this about the Messiah, Jesus that would come. Take a look at this. This is Psalm 16, 8 through 11. It says, I know the Lord is always with me. I will not be shaken for he is right beside me. No wonder my heart is glad and I rejoice. My body rests in safety for you will not leave my soul among the dead or allow your holy one to rot in the grave. The psalmist basically says there will be one that is going to beat death and because they beat death, I will have life. How incredible. And one more thing, just on the scripture that you, that you might not have noticed. He said that the Lord is always with me. Did you know that when Jesus Christ died on the cross and then when he rose from the dead, a lot of us know that truth. But did you also know that right before he ascended into heaven, he said this, I promise, and one of the gifts I'm gonna give you is the gift of the Holy Spirit. And it's gonna be the helper. And it is gonna be God in you. And so no longer do you have to come and find me because I'm always with you. Do you get that? Because if Jesus would have left without the Holy Spirit, we would be all walking around going, I wonder what Jesus would want. I wonder what Jesus would want. I have no idea. Do you? I don't know. I have no idea. That's the great thing about being a Christian is when you follow Jesus, you have that gift, the Holy Spirit inside of you that speaks to you and says, Terry, knock it off. Terry, you're doing the wrong thing. Terry, turn around. Terry, stop this madness. That's the Holy Spirit inside of us. And the psalmist wrote hundreds of years earlier that the Messiah will always be with us. Isn't it amazing? So did Jesus, was he really the son of God? Oh my goodness. The psalmist continues and said, you will show me the way of life, granting me the joy of your presence and the pleasures of living with you forever. That was written hundreds and hundreds of years before Jesus actually even came on the scene. So, was he the son of God? Again, I give you that choice. But we'll continue playing this game. If you're a skeptic, I'll go to question number four, and we're gonna spend some time on this one. How do we know that he really was raised from the dead? How do we know this? Well, I'm gonna give you a couple advantage points, and this is where it gets interesting, and I want you to take some notes. Do you know that Jesus actually predicted and actually spoke to a very significant time period? He actually related it to another book in the Bible. And he was talking about Jonah. Those of us that grew up in church, you've heard the story of Jonah and the whale. What you don't know possibly is Jonah and the whale was very, very heavily tied to Jesus rising from the dead because it was about a time period. Here. I'll unpack it for you and we'll talk about it in just a second. This is Jesus predicting his death and referring to Jonah. Take a look at this. 
He says in Matthew 12, 40, for as Jonah was in the belly of a great fish for three days and three nights, so will the Son of Man be in the heart of the earth for three days and three nights. Do you know what Jesus was actually referring to? He was referring to something known as the Jewish reckoning. And the Jewish reckoning is time of day. Now, I'm going to come back to this in a second, but take a look at the original story. This comes from Jonah chapter 1, verse 17. This is what Jesus was referring to. Now, the Lord had arranged for a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was inside the fish for three days and for three nights. The Jewish reckoning means it speaks to the fact that time is of the essence for the Jewish people. If you've ever, in fact, I'm going to pull my chair up because we're going to have a fireside chat. Some of you are nodding off and, you know, you're at home. I know you lost your cup of coffee. So I want you to tune in a little bit here. Do you know that the Jewish people look at time differently than your regular Americans do? In America, we kind of look at our weeks. We have Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. We, we know those days that each have a purpose. Um, we used to revolve around a Sunday calendar where Sunday was a day of rest and, and, and our culture kind of, you knew stores uh, wouldn't sell certain things on Sunday. They wouldn't open at a certain time on Sunday. Everyone went to church on Sunday. So we, we kind of modeled a little after that. But now in our culture, every day, pretty much everything's open. You can pretty much do what you want to do. Well, that's so in the Jewish culture. Do you know that they don't even have the names of the days in Jewish culture? They were numbers. And when it came to Friday, part of Friday, the beginning of a day to the Jewish people was sundown. It was not what we do, which is midnight, right? Midnight is 12 o'clock a.m. It's the beginning of a new day. We turn the calendar over. Not in the Jewish culture. In the Jewish culture, the beginning of a day, the way they looked at it was sundown. And the reason why it went back to creation, because in creation, it speaks to the fact that there was sunset and sunrise and God created. And so the Jewish people tie back to this. And so the beginning of a day happens when the stars are set in the sky, like Father Abraham looked at the stars of the sky for the generations. So just a lot of history for you. But what's important is the Jewish reckoning speaks to Sabbath, speaks to what we call in Sabbath in the Jewish sense is called Shabbat. Now, when I was in Israel, I got a pure sense of Shabbat because when you lived life during the week, when you got to Friday, and Friday was kind of left open. Nobody cared about Friday. They were all looking forward to sundown because sundown would be the Sabbath. And if you went to Jerusalem and you stood where the walls of Jerusalem are, you would see the rabbinical students, the excitement. They, they'd be waiting for sundown. They couldn't wait to get Friday out of the way so they could get to sundown. And all the rabbinical students would be all gathered together and they'd be laughing and they'd be joyful. And then when sunset happened, the rabbinical students would start singing and dancing and marching down to the wall. And they would begin making circles, the girls, the boys, making circles shouting hosannas, worshiping God, they could not wait for the Sabbath, which is why it's very unique when we talked about, did Jesus really rise from the dead? And the answer is yes, because Jesus knew what Friday meant. Jesus was crucified on a Friday. And while many individuals look at Friday and went to bed that night on Friday very sad, Jesus, don't miss this, Jesus understood the Jewish calendar and he wanted his people to know you better look forward to Friday because even though I'm going to die, I'm going to do something so incredible that you should be shouting victory 
because when I die, I'm going to be death. And when I die, it's like I take that beating, and every beating I take, I give you life. And if we're in this room and we believe that he's the son of God and we believe that's what happened, then when we look back at history at what Jesus did that Friday, we can understand with excitement, wow, the fact that he's doing this for me is exciting because I will live. And obviously, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, the Jewish reckoning, Jesus predicted it, he beat death, and he rose from the dead. And now the skeptics in the room, you're going to say, but Terry... That really doesn't prove that he was risen from the dead. You just kind of tell us that. You show some hundreds of years scriptures. But do we really know? And were there any witnesses? Number five. This is where it gets exciting to me because Paul faced that from the church in Corinth. They were wondering whether Jesus actually rose from the dead. Like, Paul, how, how, how do we know that this good news should be the most important thing of the church? Because think about it. The church at that time, they were saying, no, 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 no. We, we need to be a family. We need to watch one another. We need, you know, the, it, the most important part is us sticking together. It's not necessarily the gospel because maybe it's true, maybe it's not. It's really that we're together and we're of united heart. And all of a sudden, Paul said, no, 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 no. The gospel's the most important. And let me tell you why you can believe that Jesus Christ rose from the dead and it's most important. Take a look at this. He continues on in chapter five, 15, verse 5. Jesus was seen by Peter and then by the 12. After that, he was seen by more than 500 of his followers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have died. Then he was seen by James and later by all the apostles. Now, don't miss this. And if you fell asleep, you need to lean in here because it's going to show you that Jesus literally rose from the dead. He starts off by saying Peter and the 12 saw Jesus after he rose from the dead. Skeptics in the room, you say, well, Terry, that's an easy one. Those were his best friends. Those were his followers. Of course, they saw Jesus. I'll give you that. Fine, take that one off. The apostles, too easy. But then the next one, he says, he was seen by more than 500 people at one time. And some of them, most of them are still alive. Do you know what Paul said and historically what this meant? The church he was talking to, the people that he was talking to, knew many of the followers that Paul was talking about. He was talking about 500 people that this church knew. And it's as if Paul said, look, you don't think that he rose from the dead. Do you know that there are people that you know and they're alive today? You don't believe that he rose from the dead? 500 of them saw him at one time all together. They all saw it at the same time. So if you don't believe me, go check. Go check. See if I'm lying. That's pretty impressive if you think about it. For him to basically say they're still alive and you can go check with them today. But right now I want to give you the most compelling point as to why I believe Jesus Christ absolutely rose from the dead. And it's because Paul says there was another person that saw him. And his name was James. And James was the half-brother of Jesus Christ. Now how many of you have brothers? How many of you have an older brother? How many of you know what the term sibling rivalry means? How many of you ever fought with your brother? How many of you ever gotten really ticked at your brother? How many of you still resent some of the things your brother did and you are a mature adult nowadays? Me. 
It's constant rivalry. It's constant competition. I grew up, my brother was two years older than me. We played the same sports together. I always tried to outdo my brother. My brother resented me because I had gifts that he didn't. I resented him because he had gifts that I didn't. And we were constantly fighting. We had to outdo each other. We had to be better than each other. It it was very rare I'd receive a compliment from my brother. Now, I want you to think of James the half-brother of Jesus. Could you imagine living in that house? James, go to timeout. Why doesn't Jesus have to go to timeout? He didn't do anything wrong. Of course he didn't do anything wrong. He's the perfect child, always does the right thing. I mean, come on, why do I always have to take the blame? I mean, don't you believe that Jesus did something wrong? No, he never does anything wrong. I know that's the point. And if I was James, I'd be miserable at Jesus. I mean, could you imagine growing up with him? You never measure up. You always, I mean, could you imagine the wiffle ball games in the street with Jesus? I mean, all right, Jesus, I'm finally going to beat you. I'm up by two runs, bases loaded. Here's the pitch. And Jesus hits another grand slam and wins again because he's perfect. I mean, come on. And so in all seriousness, Paul says, you don't believe that Jesus was real? James saw Jesus and is telling people that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and he rose from the dead. So here's my question to all you skeptics. What would you have to do to convince your brother that you were the Son of God? What would you have to do to convince your brother that you're the Son of God? I mean, for James, the half-brother of Jesus, to come out and say, you know what? I was miserable growing up with him. It was intolerable growing up with him. He was always perfect, but I got to admit, he's the son of God and I worship him. That doesn't happen unless he's the son of God. I'm just saying. And so Paul says, again, he's writing, okay, you don't believe me? the, The 12 saw him. Okay, you don't believe the 12? 500 saw him and you know them. Okay, you don't believe that? His brother believes he's God. Come on. And then Paul says, fine, you don't believe that. I got one more for you. I saw him. And I believe he's God. Now, many of us forget that Paul was once a guy by the name of Saul. And I want to show you what Saul did to Christians. And the reason why it's important that you hear Paul say, I believe he's the son of God. He rose from the dead. Take a look at what Saul did. Paul, who was Saul, was Jewish. He studied the law under Gamaliel, who was a famous rabbi in Jewish history. In other words, Saul knew the scriptures and the truth. You could trust Saul's opinion. He chased and arrested men and women for practicing Christianity. It was documented historically that Paul had no mercy, that he would go into homes and he would tear moms away from their children and dads away from their children purely because they believed in Jesus Christ as the Son of God. He was part of the murderous mob that stoned Stephen for his faith. When you stand in Israel and you overlook the Kidron Valley, there is a church that is right outside of Jerusalem, just as the scriptures say, and that's where Stephen was stoned. And there's a church there that memorializes Stephen's death. Saul stood and gave assent and joy to the fact that Stephen, who was a follower of Jesus, was murdered. His zeal was to wipe Christianity off the map. And Paul stands up and he says to the church at Corinth, 
You don't think that he's a son of God? I hated Christians. I've done so many things to fight against Christianity and I finally saw the truth. And I saw Jesus. And he is the son of God. And I do believe that he absolutely is worth following. In Matthew chapter 27, it says this. It says, at the moment Jesus died, the curtain in the sanctuary of the temple was torn into two from top to bottom. The earth shook, rocks split apart, and tombs opened. Now pause. Okay, don't fall asleep on this. I promise you this is amazing because we always skip this part. We know that Jesus died. We know that the veil of the curtain was torn, but we forget about this little tiny fact that tombs opened up. And did you know that when Jesus rose from the dead, he wasn't the only one that was dead walking around? We think that. We think, well, Jesus was the only one who rose from the dead. No. Take a look at this. The bodies of many godly men and women who had died were raised from the dead. They left the cemetery after Jesus' resurrection, and they went into the holy city of Jerusalem and appeared to many people. We don't remember this, do we? Now, how is this? Terry, why did this happen? Let me show you. This comes from the book of Acts. Take a look at this, Acts 26, 23. It says that the Messiah would suffer and be the first to rise from the dead and in this way announce God's light to the Jews and Gentiles alike. You notice it said that Jesus would be the first to rise from the dead. Well, it speaks to the fact that when Jesus finally rose, he beat death and he cleared the path for any righteous heart to be reunited with his father. And so when Jesus Christ rose from the dead, the tombs opened up. I want you to see a picture of today. This is modern day Israel. And this is Jerusalem from the Kidron Valley. And if you see here me pointing, I want to point some things out. This is the eastern wall of the city of Jerusalem. And all these that look like stones, those aren't stones. You know what they are? They're graves. The whole wall of the eastern wall is littered with graves. And guess what? They ran out of room in front of this wall. So you know what they did? Is they actually have mounds and mounds of graves that are up the other side of the Mount of Olives, which is across the Kidron Valley. And you might say, well, Terry, why? Why are the graves right up against that wall? Because, you know, in Jewish culture, you know what they believe? Much like Christianity. They believe that when the Messiah comes, that he will usher in life. But the Jewish people believe that the Messiah hasn't come yet. And they believe that when the Messiah does come, he's going to come through an eastern gate. And you know where the eastern gate is right now? It's right here. And you know what that eastern gate is right now? It's blocked up. It's walled up. But the Jewish people believe that when the Messiah comes, that he will be the first to rise among the dead. And the reason why all of those family members are buried at the Eastern Wall is, is family members believe that if the Messiah comes, that their relatives will rise. You know, the great thing about it is, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ and you believe he rose from the dead, you know that's already come to pass. And if you've had family members who have died before you and they believed in Jesus, they have risen from the dead and they are alive today and you can celebrate that. But I close because I still think there might be some skeptics in the room or watching online 
I'd say, Terry, it's nice, but I just don't know. I know because I had all this information too. And I remember looking at a friend of mine right before I left for my first year of college and I said these words to her, I will never get it. I looked in the eyes of a friend who poured their heart out to me about who Jesus was and he was the son of God and I looked at them and with an honest and pure heart, I said, I want to believe, but I will never get it. See, the truth is I didn't want to be a pastor. In fact, I looked at God and said, God, I don't want to be a pastor. But what I said to God was, God, I'll tell you what, you know, you changed my life because now I believe in you. But I'm not going to be a pastor because if, if you want me to be a pastor, then you've got to confirm it through friends. You've got to take a complete stranger out of nowhere, bring them into my life, never met them, and they have to tell me I need to be a pastor. And then even if you do that, I'm not going to believe it. And so you've got to break my heart. And I thought, God can't do that. And he did it in a week. You know, the truth is, is that the gospel is not something that is simple. It's dangerous. Because it means that your current life, if you choose the gospel, it will adversely affect your current life. But here's the great thing. I choose it. I choose the good news because I believe. And I can promise if you're in this room and you believe he's the son of God, it's time for you to stop being a Christian in both worlds. It's time for you to start saying, oh, I believe in Jesus Christ, but I like to make my own decisions. Yeah, I believe in Jesus Christ, but I don't have to do all that. I can do this and this and this and this. If that's you, then you've not grabbed the good news and you've not embraced the gospel because the gospel's dangerous. Because the gospel will radically change your life if you let it. And so, have you received the gospel? Church, maybe you're not a part of a church. And if you've not, then I want to give you an opportunity to do that today. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, right now in this room with eyes closed and heads bowed, God, I, I tried my best in my humanness to, to show individuals why the gospel is the most important part of the church. But secondly, God, why we can trust in the reality and truth that you are the son of God, that you rose from the dead, that people saw it. And because of you, my life was radically changed along with millions and millions of others. And so, God, for the person in this room right now who has their feet in both worlds, God, I pray that today they would say yes to the gospel. So if that's you right now and you'd say, Terry, I want to live a life of receiving the gospel, then I just encourage you to pray this prayer. And it says something like this, dear Jesus, I'm tired of playing games. I'm tired of owning my decisions. God, I want the Holy Spirit. I want the guide, the helpmate to come into my life to help me to make wise choices. God, I'm sacrificing my life because it's really not mine, it's yours. And I ask that you'd guide me, lead me, and Lord, thank you for purpose because from here on out, I'm going to follow you. And Lord, because I follow you, I'll have an incredible life. So God, thank you today that I know beyond a shadow of a doubt that when I die, I will not die because you died in my place. And I will rise 
and those that have gone before me who have trusted and received the gospel, I will see them again because they also have risen from the dead. So God, thank you today. I choose life. And I tell you, I love you. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Thanks so much for listening to today's podcast. If you would like more information about the ministries at Ocean View, or if you'd like to speak to someone directly, you can visit our website at www.ovbc.org. Thanks again for listening. Have a great day.